Well, good morning, Velocity. It's great to be here, and uh, thanks, Chip. I think, Chip, you're the longest person I have ever worked with. That's right. Get, get to, go get that table. So uh, it was an absolute joy to work with Chip for nine years here at Velocity. Nine years ago, we left uh, like in the summertime, so it's been exactly nine years ago here uh, when I became the executive director of Waypoint Church Partners. Waypoint Church Partners is the organization that helped this church get started and so many more. You may not know it, but since Velocity started, uh, you've been supporting uh, Waypoint and you've helped start, uh, to, by my count, 42 other churches like Velocity all over the Mid-Atlantic region. And so that's something to be proud of. Someone almost clapped right there. You can clap for that. Um, <clears throat> And uh, you helped start uh, two churches this past year, uh, one of them in uh, Holly Springs, North Carolina, called Lake Springs Church, another one, uh, actually three churches, one of them in Virginia Beach uh, called uh, the Journey Church, and one in Goldsboro, North Carolina called Canvas Church. I got to preach at two of those just in the last couple of weeks. Uh, this is Canvas Church, started uh, a little, about a year and a half ago. Uh, in a movie theater, which felt very uh, familiar to preach there, because if you don't know it, this church met in the movie theater for almost nine years at Shore Pump Regal Cinemas before we moved here into this building. So felt right at home to see the kids sticking to the floor and having cup holders for church. You're, only church, you're the only church in town with cup holders when you start in a movie theater. And so, uh, so it was great to be there, and you helped start that church. Uh, that church has already celebrated their 50th baptism in a year and a half, and uh, just really knocking it out of the park. And uh, so that's great. Uh, yeah, if you're going to... Applaud for anything. Uh, that's something about churches that really have life change. I got to preach uh, the week after that at Journey Church. I think we got a picture of this uh, in Virginia Beach. They meet in all places in a roller skating rink, uh, which is uh, it's our second church plant that we've ever had, believe it or not, not our first, that met in a roller skating rink, which brings me back to my old days in junior high. But, you know, uh, uh, Journey and uh, the Commodores, uh, She's a Brick House uh, was the song, you know, so, but this is a brand new roller skating rink and that opened during COVID and uh, it's a great story. I probably shouldn't go to this, but the, the dude that owns this, our church planter was looking for a place to meet, couldn't find it, met with the, the guy that owns this. Could, I, could I, my church meet there? He's like, sure. Uh, come to find out that this kid was two years old and his dad came to our first informational meeting for the first church that we started in Virginia Beach before Velocity, uh, that his dad became my best friend. And now he's all grown up and owns a roller skating rink that he's renting out to another church uh, right up the street. And so uh, God uh, really uh, makes us a real small world when you get into this business. So thanks for being a part of Waypoint. We're, we're proud uh, so we're planting two more churches, and when I say we, I mean we, we're planting two more churches just next month, well, September, next month in a couple of days. Uh, in September 10th, uh, you're helping us to plant a new church in Durham, North Carolina, and then on September 17th, uh, planting a new church here in the Richmond area in Ashland uh, called Local Christian Church, which is an interesting name. Uh, so they've got about six weeks before they open, and so you'll have a sister church here in the metro area of Richmond, and then we'll keep planting two or three more churches every year that you're a part of. And so thanks for being part of that. We're really proud, obviously, not only for starting new churches, but churches that are reaching new people for Christ. We're not just shuffling the sheep or shifting the saints, and so we're really proud of that. And so last year, the uh, I, we've got a map of the churches that you've helped us start. I got out of order. There you go. Uh, the churches that are just on this map here um, celebrated almost 500 baptisms last year, 467 baptisms, which include the ones that were baptized here at this church along with the other ones that you've helped us to start over the years. And so, uh, we, we, so that's like nine people every Sunday 
basically on average, that this week and next week and next week and next week, we're seeing more and more people that uh, place their faith in Christ and are obedient in baptism saying, I'm all in for living for him. And so that's something you can be proud of, and, and uh, I'm glad that you're, that you're a part of that still. And so, but I'm glad that I get to preach here. I get to preach uh, all summer at some of our church plants and different, uh, different, sermon, uh, different church every week. I have the luxury of, uh, because I travel every week, uh, only needing one good sermon. And uh, so, uh, but I've preached it here already. So it's like, now what am I going to do? So I asked Rob when he asked me to preach this week, uh, what should I preach on? And he said, uh, just preach one of your favorite uh, sermons or one of your favorite books. And so, uh, so I'm going to do that uh, this morning. Uh, and uh, so we did a series uh, 10 years ago because we got a, we got a YouTube video, uh, a summer series uh, about your favorite ch- children's book. Do you have a favorite children's book? Uh, from when you were growing up that, that you would have, have your mom read over and over again every night, trying to stall, not going to sleep. And uh, so we had a bumper video every week where someone on staff uh, told the story of their favorite childhood book. And here's the one from my week uh, 10 years ago uh, this month. Barnes & Noble. Hey, Velocity, we're here at Barnes & Noble, and we've just started this series uh, called The Story, and it reminds us of some of the stories we learned uh, when we were kids, all the books that we read. We've been reading the story to our kids uh, every morning over breakfast, and so uh, we've been talking about, talking about some of the books that, that uh, we liked as a kid, and to be honest, when I was a kid, I wasn't much of a, a book reader. I liked magazines, like so when I was three or four years old, I'd read uh, Sports Illustrated and, and uh, Car and Driver and, and, and Chickens. But uh, last week, Laura shared her favorite story about this big fat cat that ate all the neighborhood kids. That was disturbing. Uh, But if I had to pick out my favorite story as a kid, it would be this one, Go Dog Go, uh, where you just got a bunch of dogs doing a bunch of crazy things, and they end up partying on a big tree at the end of the story. But throughout the story, uh, there's this... uh, there's this part on this page where these two dogs keep meeting, a guy dog and a girl dog, and she says, do you like my hat? And he says, no, I do not like your hat. And then they say, goodbye, goodbye. And he hates her hat the whole time through, and it's just kind of funny. But they get to the, they get to the whole end scene where they're on this big party at the end, and uh, you can kind of see how that works. And so I think this is a great book. It teaches our kids the meaning of life, that it's okay to be a judgmental canine who uh, parties with dogs on the top of a tree, because that's what dogs do. All right. Well, what's your favorite childhood uh, book? That's my favorite, Go Dog Go. Anybody else, Go Dog Go was one of their favorite books. There's a few of us. For those of us old enough to have read books when we were a kid uh, rather than on a, 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 a iPad or something like that. Well, I, uh, I want to uh, talk about uh, not a childhood book, but my, one of my favorite books of the Bible. Do you have a favorite book of the Bible? I think everybody ought to have a favorite book in the Bible. There's 66 books, 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament. Uh, but it's good, I think it's good to have a favorite verse, a life verse, a favorite book of the Bible. Uh, and so I want to talk about probably my favorite book in the Bible in the New Testament. Nehemiah is my favorite book in the Old Testament because all the leadership lessons that we see from this leader uh, in Nehemiah. But in, in the book of, in the New Testament, probably my favorite book of the Bible is the book of James. And uh, it's not, um, not any of the books written 
written by Jesus' best friend, John. Uh, he wrote several of them, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, the Gospel of John, and then the book of Revelation from the island, island of Patmos. So he, he wrote a lot of the New Testament. It's not that. It's actually from uh, James. And uh, so I'm going to read from that if you want to get your Bibles out. I, I think it's kind of funny. My dog recently, speaking of Go Dog Go, decided to eat my Bible. I've been preaching from this Bible for 25 years, left it on the coffee table, and I figured there's got to be some kind of illustration that, that a preacher could use about eating the Bible, right? That eating the words of God or something is loaded there. It just makes me think, you remember that old Disney movie, All Dogs Go to Heaven? Nope, not this one. Our dog, Blue, he's going to spend eternity down with all the cats, I think, is where, uh, where he's going after eating my Bible. So, but I'm still preaching with it. Lisa's embarrassed when she travels with me. She couldn't be here today, but she sends her greetings. But she says, you're not taking that up on stage, are you? I'm like, yeah, I'm taking it up. It's my preaching Bible. And so, uh, so anyway, I want to look, to look at uh, the, the uh, book of James, uh, one uh, big section of that. But uh, I like the, the book of James uh, because it's, um, it's real easy to read. I, I need those kind of books. And it's real straight to the point. And it's not like John, the God, Jesus friend that was all about all these metaphors and, and imagery and all that, that you got to figure out what he's talking about. James is just like, here it is. And I kind of like that. And, um, and we could talk about theology all day long, but I like the way Christian author, one of my favorite authors, John Ortbook put it in this quote. He said, people would rather debate doctrine or beliefs or tradition or interpretation than actually do what Jesus said. It's not rocket science. Just go do it. Practice loving a difficult person or try forgiving someone. Uh, give away some money. Tell someone thank you. Encourage a friend. Bless an enemy. Say I'm sorry. Worship God. You already know more than you need to know. And I think that's what the, the book of James is like. It's kind of a kick you in the seat of the pants, flick you on the side of the head kind of book that says, here's the way you ought to be living your life when you're following Jesus. And so I want to look at... Um, uh, the beginning of John chapter 2 in your Bibles, but I think you have to back up just a couple of verses uh, where he talks about this is pure religion, to take care of widows and orphans and keeping yourself unpolluted from the world. Uh, so we've, have we got that scripture, James 1, 27? Religion that our God and Father accepts as pure and faultless as this, taking care of widows and orphans in their distress and keeping yourself clean before God. And, and I don't know if you knew this, but the, the verses, numbers, and the chapter numbers were not written by the original authors. When James was writing this, he didn't write chapter one. And I believe personally that chapter two is an extension of this verse where it rolls over into, here's another example of pure religion. But usually uh, people will just take verse 127 here as this is what pure religion is. And so I'm so thankful that Velocity is the kind of church that takes care of widows and orphans and people in need uh, like the moments of hope. That's awesome. But I think James goes on in chapter 2 and says, let me tell you more what, what pure and faultless religion looks like. And uh, so that's, that's when he begins here in verse 1. He says, um, brothers and sisters, believers in our Lord Jesus Christ, you must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into our meeting, comes into church wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand over here, sit over there by my feet, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear friends, 
brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you've dishonored the poor. Is not the rich the ones who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of whom to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law yet stumbles in just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said you should not commit adultery also said you shouldn't murder. And so if you don't commit adultery but do commit murder, you become a lawbreaker. Speak as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So you get the picture of what James is describing here. This is James, the brother of Jesus, by the way, the younger brother of Jesus. And so I call him Jimmy because younger brothers always have the diminutive name, right? So this is his brother Jimmy writing a book to the church. He was the pastor of the church uh, in, in uh, Ephesus, and uh, he, he says, uh, this is what religion looks like, taking care of people. It's that simple. And so he says, when someone comes into your room, into your church service, uh, and, and they, they, you know, are they sitting on the front row? Now, I, I think we have a hard time understanding this passage, because in modern day America, sitting in the front row is not a big deal, is it? unless you're like going to a Taylor Swift concert, then you're going to arrive two hours early and you know, you're going to bust out, try and get on the front row. But for church, no one is busting down the doors. I arrived a little bit early. There was no one waiting outside here so that when we opened the doors, they could sit on the front row. All right, that's not a big deal. But we understand the notion, the teaching of what James is talking here about favoritism and that it's ingrained in the human heart to show favoritism to people over others. And, um, and so... We're, it's a trap that we fall into. And, and rather than trying to describe the whole human experiment about the way this works, I found this little a video that kind of describes it in just a couple of minutes. Hope this one works. Your brain is constantly making calls about what's right and what's wrong. And though you may not think twice about these everyday moral decisions, the calculations behind them can be pretty complicated. As you're about to see in this next experiment, Imagine you're walking through the park one afternoon when you see someone fall down. Would you lend a hand? We've enlisted the help of an actress and set up a hidden camera experiment to see what strangers will do in this exact scenario. How do you think people will react once our actress hits the pavement? I think she may have hurt herself. That didn't take long. Within seconds, a crowd quickly gathers around, ready and willing to help. We run the experiment over and over, and every time, people responded to help her up in less than 10 seconds. You okay? I'm okay. It seems people will lend a helping hand to someone lying on the ground. It makes you feel good about humanity, right? But is there anything we can do to make passers-by turn a blind eye to the same person? What happens when we change nothing but the way our actress looks? <coughs> Would you help someone up who looks so down and out? How will people react now? How long will it take for someone to help? 
30 seconds have gone by and no one has come close to helping. They just keep walking. More than a minute has passed and no one has helped. She's been on the ground for 15 minutes. Before you judge any of these people too harshly, ask yourself, what would you do in this situation? It seems people's brains are having a hard time seeing this woman in need. It's as if she were invisible, even to this couple sitting just 10 feet away. Why did so many people stop to help this woman, but not this one? Why does our actress's appearance make such a huge difference? All right, that tells the whole story real quick, doesn't it? And we all understand that part of the human nature is this, this, this uh, propensity to show favoritism to some people over another. And so even though it's not about who sits in the front row versus the back row in church, which in James chapter 2 doesn't make a whole lot of sense, we understand that this is the way the humans are wired, isn't it? So uh, to be this 2,000-year-old reality where, the, where James, Jimmy, is saying, hey, uh, don't show favoritism. Let me write this whole 20-verse uh, section about that. And uh, so there's this great uh, passage in the Old Testament that uh, in some ways mirrors this lesson that James is teaching us about favoritism. It's, it's found in the book of uh, 1 Samuel uh, chapter 16. It's the account when uh, David is anointed as king over Israel. I don't know if you know this, there were three kings over Israel, Saul, David, and then Solomon. And uh, Solomon had just been disqualified from leadership, and so they're looking for their new king. And so Samuel, uh, God's prophet, the spokesman for God at this point, in the absence of a king, is supposed to go. And so he goes to this little town of Bethlehem, and he finds his family. Uh, the, the dad's name is Jesse, which I think is a great name, and we name people Jesse to this day. And, uh, and Jesse has eight boys. And so, um, and so they come in from the ranch, uh, Jesse and seven of the boys, but they got to leave the, the littlest one, who's probably 10, 12 years old, home to watch the animals, the dog and the cat, so they don't eat the Bible and things like that uh, off the coffee table. And so, um, so surely the oldest, Eli, is going to be, because in that culture, the patriarchal society, the first son is like the dude, right? And so he brings out Eli with all this pomp and circumstance that happens when God's prophet Samuel comes in, and Samuel looks at Eli and goes, not him. And so Jesse, the dad, says, okay. And so then he brings out son number two, and Samuel goes, not him either. And they go through all of the first seven sons, bringing them out in front of the whole town, saying, here's the guy that's going to be the next king of, over our country. And every time Samuel says, not him. And, uh, and, and uh, Samuel says, is that all you got? And he's like, well, we got one more son back at home watching the animals. And Samuel says, go get him. We're not going to sit down until he shows up. And uh, so Samuel, it sounds like to me like he's a little honked off. You know, he's like, go get him. We ain't going to move on until son number eight shows up. So they send all the way back home and get uh, this little punk named David. Uh, and he comes into town and they bring the little kid like Boy Scout age in and says, how about him? And, and Samuel says, he's the one. And uh, there's this verse in this passage in uh, 1 Samuel 16 that is really the same principle that I think we're learning from, the, from uh, James in James chapter 2. This is what Samuel said. 
The Lord doesn't look at things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Isn't that a great biblical lesson? People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. God doesn't look at us the way that humans look at us. God sees people from the inside out. That's the way he sees people. And the question is today, as we look at this passage, is is that the way you see people? Do you see them from the outside in or from the inside out? And so for honest, uh, we understand that this problem that James is addressing is a 2,000-year-old problem. Actually, it's a, since the creation of the world problem. It's still relevant to us today who are seated in this room, isn't it? That we have to ask, what are we going to do about the fact that this is the curse that we have from the Garden of Eden, that we're prone to judging people about their outside appearance, that we judge a book by its cover? And uh, so um, I wish that I had a brilliant like academic theological explanation from James chapter two to share with you today. I like to impress people when I preach with like Greek words and kind of parse that out and go, ooh, isn't that sharp the way he figured that out from the original Greek word? And, um, and, but actually, I don't have one of those today, to be honest. I, I don't have some brilliant lesson to teach you. Actually, following the, la- the lead of James, I've got a simple kind of flicky in the side of the head kind of application to what James is teaching here. Our younger daughter, we moved away uh, nine years ago. Our younger daughter, Vika, grew up here at this church. She was like David's age, about 10 years old when we planted uh, Velocity Church. She's all grown up now. And uh, she moved, uh, she went to JMU and got her, counsel- uh, her psychology degree and then got her master's in counseling. And now she uh, works in that department at Christopher Newport University. Here's a picture of, a recent picture of Vika and Garrett, who's all from this church over here. There's uh, her mo- his mom. We just saw them last night. And, uh, and I, I was always fascinated as she was getting her counseling degree to talk with Vika about all the principles and the tools that she was learning to be a counselor on how she could help people make a breakthrough, make a change in the way they act or the way they think. And counselors learn ways that they can help you uh, make. And, 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 uh, and I'm, I've I don't get counseling a whole lot because I'm kind of like a, here's the way it ought to be. I, I think I would be a horrible counselor, <laughs> to be honest. And, um, and if you want to know what kind of counselor I would be, uh, I, I found this little clip. It's a classic old grainy old clip of one of my favorite comedians, Bob Newhart, talk about how he would counsel people that I think is more like the way I would. <laughs> Go. <laughs> Go. Well, tell me, tell me about the problem that you wish to address. Oh, okay. Uh, well, I have this fear of being buried alive in a box. <laughs> I just, I start thinking about being buried alive and I begin to panic. Has, has, has anyone ever, ever tried to, to bury you alive in a box? No, no, but truly thinking about it does make my life horrible. I mean, I can't go through tunnels or be in an elevator or in a house, anything boxy. So what, what you're saying is you're, uh, you're claustrophobic. Uh, yes. Yes, that's it. All right. Well, uh, let's go, Catherine. I'm, uh, 
I'm going to uh, say two words to you right now. I, I want you to listen to them very, very carefully. Then I want you to take them out of the office with you and incorporate them in, into your life. Well, shall I uh, write them down? Well, it, if it makes you comfortable, it's just two words. Most, we find most people can, uh, can remember them. <laughs> okay. You ready? Yes. Okay, you're there. Stop it! I'm sorry? Stop it! Stop it? Yes, S-T-O-P, new word, I-T. So, what are you saying? <laughs> you, you know, it's funny. I, I, I say two simple words, and I cannot tell you the amount of people who say exactly the same thing you're saying. I mean, this, you know, this is not Yiddish, Catherine. This is English. Stop it. So I should just stop it. There you go. I mean, you, you, you don't want to go through life being scared of being buried alive in a box, do you? I mean, that sounds, sounds frightening. <laughs> yes. Then stop it. Well, I have self-destructive relationships with men. Stop it. <laughs> you, you want to be with a man, don't you? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, then stop it. <laughs> I don't like this. I don't like this therapy at all. You're just telling me to stop it. And and you and you don't you don't like that. No, I don't. So you think we're we're moving too fast? Is that it? Yes. Yes, I do. All right. Then let me uh, let me uh, give you ten words that I I think will. Uh, clear everything up for you. Uh, you want you want to get a pad and a pencil for this one. All right. Are you ready? Mm -hmm. All right. Here are the ten words. Stop it, or I'll bury you alive in a box. I think that's the kind of counselor I'd be. But I come by it honest because I think that's the kind of counselor James, the brother of Jesus, kind of is in this passage. Um, he, he doesn't say stop it, but did you notice the two words he used there in the first couple of verses? He said, my brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, you must not show favoritism, right? You must not show favoritism. That's about as simple as it gets, right? That's like S-T-O-P, new word, I-T, stop it, right? That's about as simple as it comes. You must not show favoritism. So what's that look like for us? It's not about sitting in the front row. It's about maybe showing favoritism for people who, for people who grew up in church their whole life, for people who didn't grow up in church their whole life, or people who've been at this church a long time versus people who are kind of new at this church, or people who align themselves with one political party versus another, people who live in a really nice neighborhood versus people who live in a, a somewhere lower on the tier of, of neighborhoods, or someone who's got a white-collar job versus someone who's got a blue-collar job. Someone went to college, someone who never went to college. It doesn't matter what it is. James, the brother of Jesus, just says, stop it, right? You must not show favoritism. S-T-O-P, new word, I-T, stop it. That's what he says. That's a kind of... Um, Christianity for dummies, isn't it? Well, it's like Christianity 101, don't show favoritism. And uh, so 
Uh, so he says, for, so this, we got to stop it for, for three reasons, I think. Number one, he says, because it's sin. He said, favoritism is sin. It's pretty simple, isn't it? Christianity 101. You stop it because it's sin. Number two, you stop it because it's not like Jesus. It's not the way Jesus acted at all, was it? And uh, so um, that's, um, for Jesus, your self-worth was never based on your net worth. When you watch how he interacted with people throughout the four biographies of his life, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, he didn't show favoritism. He took a person because he, he saw them from the inside out. And so we don't show favoritism in whatever that looks like in our culture because it's sin, because, uh, because it's not like Jesus. And I, that's what I love about this church and all the other churches that you're helping us to start is because you get this, that uh, I believe that what James is trying to teach us is that at this church, it's okay to not be okay, Right? At this church, it's okay to not be okay. Whether you're in the front row or the back row, uh, it's okay. Whether you're loaded with cash or you're making it paycheck to paycheck, whether you live in a huge house or a small house, whether you went uh, to college or, or community college or graduated from high school, it doesn't matter. And even in your personal life, what's going on, it's okay to be not okay. But what you also need to understand is that this church, it's not okay to be okay with not being okay. You follow that, what I'm saying? It's not okay to be okay with this church here wants you to become a person that heals and grows and matures and becomes more and more like the image of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so you are welcome, whether you're in the front row or the back row, whether you, you, all those things that we could judge people about, it's okay to me not to be okay, but it's not okay to stay there that Jesus wants you to grow and mature and become more like him. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of churches where it's only okay if you look okay, right? To be honest, it's about which car you drive and which purse you carry and which clothes you wear, and it looks exactly like James chapter 2, doesn't it? And I used to pastor at one of those churches before we moved to Virginia to plant our first church in Virginia Beach and then this one here in Richmond. Uh, I pastored a church in, uh, outside of the suburbs of Detroit, Michigan. And uh, it was a good church, growing church, family church, and, uh, and it was a great church to be a part of. Uh, but we knew that we would soon be moving to Virginia to plant a church for people who really didn't like church a whole lot. People that might have given up on church but not given up on God quite yet. And so my dilemma was that there wasn't a whole lot of people in my church that, were, that fit that profile. Everybody in my church were people who were church people, you know. And so I made it a concerted effort to try and hang out with as many people intentionally that were the kind of people that I was going to try, try to be reaching in our new church, a church for people who don't like church. And so one of those people was this gal named Melissa, who was the gal who cut my hair at the mall uh, at once a month. Back then I had a lot more hair. And, uh, and so I'd go and, and uh, met Melissa. And Melissa uh, self-admittedly would say that she had lived a hard life. She was a single mom. Uh, Melissa had tattoos all down her arm, and this was so long ago. This was before tattoos were a thing, all right? So she, she, uh, and she smoked, and she, she looked like the hard life that she would describe. And knowing that I was a pastor, it took her several months to warm up 
to her recurring client who came for his haircut. But after a while, she started to open up to me about her questions and thoughts about spiritual things. And so I really looked forward to go get my monthly appointment with Melissa to hear about someone who did not go to church, what she thought about church and what she thought about Jesus and what she thought about Christ followers. And uh, so I I invited her to come to our church uh, and actually was somewhat relieved when she said that Sundays were really hard for her to come to church because she hung out with her friends on Saturday night and she rarely got up early on Sunday morning. And I almost, I hate to admit, but I almost breathed a sigh of relief because our church was full of churchy people and I didn't know if she'd fit in. But one, um, one Sunday night, and this is way back in the day where you had Sunday night church Sunday morning church, and then you had Sunday night church for the really religious people, right? And so we had a Sunday night service, and, uh, and I was standing back by the soundboard uh, during, during the worship service, and after the, about 10 minutes after the service started, I saw Melissa sneak into the service and sit in the back row in the summer, and, and, um, and I was so uh, surprised that she showed up at our church on Sunday morning, pews and steeple and the whole thing. And uh, well, what I remember most about that night was um, when we had communion in the middle of the service, an elder got up from his seat over here and he made his way up. And I remember exactly what he talked about when he talked about communion. Because he didn't talk about communion and the bread and the juice and what they're for, or Jesus' death on the cross. What he talked about was the fact that this was not his week to, serve, to talk about communion, but that the elder who was supposed to do it was on vacation and didn't find someone to take his place. And so he was so embarrassed to be up on stage without a jacket and a tie on. And he was apologizing that he didn't, he was, and, and, and I don't want to judge him for that, but I can tell you, I remember standing in the back and seeing Melissa literally looking down at her clothes, shorts, t-shirt, flip-flops, and I could almost hear her saying, I don't belong here. And it broke my heart. Because at that church, it's only okay if you look okay. And so I'm so thankful that you're part of a church where it's okay not to be okay. That you can sit in the front row or the back row or anywhere in between. And um, maybe you felt that way before. And you, you need to know that Jesus spent the majority of his ministry hanging out with people who wouldn't feel welcome in church either. And so you're in the right place. There's this interesting passage, uh, sentence that James concludes with. And so we don't need, we need to stop judging. S-T-O-P, new word, I-T. We just need to stop being judgmental uh, because it's sin, because it's not like Jesus, and because mercy is better than judgment. And that's an interesting way that he kind of finishes this. James concludes the passage, mercy triumphs over judgment in verse 13. Mercy is greater than judgment. And it, and it talks about liberating us from judgment. If you get into this trap of judging people based on the way they look, it is slavery. Because there is always someone less than you, but there is always someone more than you. So if there's always someone who makes more money than you. There's always someone that's in a bigger house than you. There's always someone in a newer car than yours. There's always someone that went to a better school than yours. There, it is a trap of Satan to get in this uh, mode of being judgmental because you are enslaved to always comparing yourself and figuring out where you belong on the scale that you have trapped yourself in. And so James says, mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy liberates us from judgment. 
You know, Lisa and I uh, recently celebrated our 36th wedding anniversary, and last year we got to celebrate our anniversary, got a picture of it. We were in Athens, um, Rome for our anniversary, and, um, and so we, try, we uh, try and remember every anniversary. We were trying to remember all the anniversaries, and we're getting old now, so this is, becomes a hard task. Remember what we've done for all of our anniversaries. We, we'd go through and say, yeah, year one we did this, year two we did this. You'd think we'd write it down so we'd remember the next year, but it's a fun little exercise to try and remember all the fun anniversaries we've been. And when we'd been married three or four years, I don't remember which it was, my mom gave us tickets to go see a musical in downtown Cincinnati. And um, I have to admit, I was not excited about this anniversary gift. Because I'd never been to a musical before, and that sounded like a wussy date night to me, to be really honest. And, um, and um, I, I was not thrilled about, and we we're gonna go see this new musical, and they were gonna sing the plot for two hours. And, that just didn't make any sense to me. And it was this French musical that I don't think was going to pan out very well because it was this musical called Les Mis. And, um, and so I was like, I'm, I'm going to see f- people sing in French for two hours. How could this be any fun? So we go to downtown uh, Cincinnati to the Taft Theater, named after Cincinnati's second most famous politician. Uh, the first famous most politician of Cincinnati is... Jerry Springer, that's right, our former mayor, and uh, he made us proud at four o'clock every afternoon. Uh, but the, the downtown theater is called the Taft Theater, named after William Howard Taft, the 27th president of the United States. So we go with our tickets in hand and get all spiffied up. And, um, and so we go and we discover that we are in the third balcony. All right, so there's a reason they call these nosebleed seats, because we were just way up there. And uh, so the, the musical starts, and way down on the, on the stage are these little ants that were singing, you know? And I'm thinking to myself, it's gonna be a long night. And then something happened. I was blown away. I was amazed at a musical like Les Mis. And I don't know if you've ever been to a musical, but this one just blew. And we went home, and we just talked the whole way home about how amazing that, that thing was. And, um, and you know what? I was not jealous of the people that were in the second balcony or the first balcony or down on the main floor. I was just happy I was in the room because I was amazed at what we saw. And... Um, not long after that, uh, four, four or five years later, um, I gotta fi- figure out where I am in my notes here. Four or five years later, we were up in Michigan by this point and at that church where I pastored and late one afternoon, one of my friends called me and said, hey, I've got tickets to the hockey game tonight. Uh, you wanna go? And you have to understand in Detroit, hockey is the number one sport. And uh, the Detroit Red Wings, this was actually a year they won the Stanley Cup. And uh, in Detroit, they played hockey in the, the old Joe Louis Arena, which is known by all hockey fans as Hockey Town USA. It's the epicenter of hockey in America. And because of their popularity, the whole arena is sold out for the whole year. Lower deck, top, upper deck, sold out. It's almost impossible to get tickets. And so I'm like, yeah, we're going to the hockey match. So I called Lisa on the phone and said, hey, get a babysitter. Uh, we're going to the hockey match tonight. And I was really surprised that she was not nearly as excited to go to this hockey match as I was. 
But she said, okay. So we find a babysitter, then we get in the car, meet up with our friends, we drive downtown Detroit, Michigan, and we go to Joe Louis Arena, and, and we, we get into the arena, and I, we, we go down to our seats, and I didn't realize that my friend's wife was the vice president of this little company called Blue Cross Blue Shield of Michigan. So we are in the front row, all right, right next to the Red Wings bench, like, like Stevie Iserman and, and, and Fedorov and all those guys, they're, they're right here. And, and uh, you know, we see them when their faces like smashed up against the glass panel. It's awesome. And it only takes about two minutes before Lisa's right there banging on the panel and she's doing the whole thing. And she, she didn't want to be there. You know, and as I thought about it, I thought this arena with 20,000 people, they're probably looking down at us on the front row thinking how in the world they get those seats, the executive seats. And they must be really special people to have got to sit in, in those seats where everybody wants to sit. And if they'd asked me, how in the world did we get those seats, I'd just point for our friends and say, they paid our way. They, they paid our way. We're just happy to be in the room. I think that's the point that James is making in his story about mercy triumphs over judgment, is um, it doesn't matter where you sit or, or where, you, where you work or where you live or whatever, that you remember that uh, when people ask you, why do you go to this church, and wh- wherever you sit, you just say, I go because I'm just happy to be in the room. Someone else paid my way, right? Someone else paid my way. I'm just happy to be here. And I'm not going to be judgmental about anybody else in the room. I'm just happy to be in the room. We're going to segue to communion here in a minute. And the segue is perfect for this because every week we remember Jesus' death on the cross. And um, we can get rid of Hockey Town USA, even though that's, that's like the epic picture right there. Um, I have no idea how much my mom paid for those tickets to go see Les Mis all those years ago, 30 plus years ago. And I have no idea how much those executive tickets cost to see the Red Wings in Joe Louis Arena. Probably a lot, but I, I have no idea. But the thing about Christianity is we know exactly what the cost was for us to be in this room, don't we? It cost Jesus his life. It cost him everything. So we're not judgmental. We stop being judgmental because we're just happy to be in the room. Someone else paid our way. And we remember that every single Sunday at Velocity that we take this little bit of bread and this little bit of juice and remember this was the cost to get me in the room. And we're thankful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I'm so thankful to be part of a church and more and more churches every year that get this idea that it's, it's, it's okay to not be okay. That we don't have to wear the right clothes or drive the right car or live in the right house or all that stuff that's just a trap that we come into this room thankful to be here because someone else paid our way. And so right now we're going to pause and take communion to to remember exactly that, to remember the cost. It cost Jesus his life. He died on the cross. His blood was shed. His body was broken for us. So we're not going to judge other people. We're going to have mercy because of the mercy shown to us. So thank you for leading the way and thank you for this passage that teaches us 
what it looks like to, to act like your son Jesus. And so we pray in his name. Amen.